Hello and welcome to the Innovation Forum podcast for Friday 1st of April with me, Ian Welsh. A few days ago, I spoke with José Luis López from Solidaridad and Mario Rafael Rodriguez at the Reinforce Alliance about the use of the Landscale framework in a production landscape in Guatemala. We talked in particular about how use of Landscale has helped to identify and mitigate human rights and labour issues. And this week, I caught up with Innovation Forum's Emily Heslop about the Future of Food conference that is coming up in June in Minneapolis in the US. That's all to come. First, though, some sustainable business news. New research suggests that forests play an even greater role in controlling the planet's climate than was previously thought. A paper published in the journal Frontiers in Forests and Global Change argues that climate policy has focused too much on carbon stocks and sequestration when thinking about the role of forests and the impact of deforestation. There are other biophysical factors, including forest structures and composition, that impact water and temperature balances locally and globally. These mean that the forests have a greater impact on mitigating climate change than was previously thought, with tropical forests having the greatest impact. The research found that in the tropics, the cooling effect of forests can be more than 1 Celsius, and inevitably, tropical deforestation has a greater impact on climate stability than cutting down trees in other regions. The paper concludes that the importance of forests for both global climate change mitigation and local adaptation is not adequately captured by current carbon-centric metrics. However, the growth of the voluntary carbon markets and the demand for verified carbon credits as companies establish net zero targets over increasingly ambitious timescales continues. And NASDAQ has developed new commodity reference price indexes that track the price of removing carbon from the atmosphere. The indexes are based on NASDAQ's Puro.Earth carbon removal certificates, known as CORCs, and aim to support the growth of the voluntary carbon markets by creating greater transparency and credibility. Puro.Earth is a marketplace, registry and standard focused on carbon removal. It identifies companies with products or processes that remove more carbon dioxide from the atmosphere than they emit. The net negative emissions are verified by a third party and issued as carbon removal certificates. The carbon credit market has been criticised as having a lack of liquidity and consistency in data to assess project credibility. NASDAQ aims to address these through the new indexes, supporting standardisation and transparency in the carbon removal market. The war in Ukraine has forced UK supermarket chain Iceland to perform a U-turn on its decision to remove palm oil from all of its own label products. The business made mainstream media headlines in 2018 when it announced its intention to stop using palm oil because of the commodity's links with deforestation in the tropics. Iceland had switched many product lines to using sunflower oil instead, the price of which has soared over the past few weeks as the Black Sea region accounts for 80% of global supply. Iceland says that it'll switch back to sustainable palm oil temporarily. The alternative would have been to discontinue certain product lines, such as frozen chips and other potato products. The ongoing war will have a number of implications for global food supply chains. In the US, a bipartisan Senate group says that significant increases in food aid will be necessary to prevent millions of people starving, given the impact on grain supply chains and other staple foods. The US Congress has already agreed $13 billion in aid just for Ukraine, including $2.65 billion for food. Reuters has reported that the UN World Food Programme faces a $9 billion funding shortfall. Even before Russia invaded Ukraine, 44 million people in 38 countries were facing famine. The UN programme sources 50% of its commodities from Ukraine. Combined, Russia and Ukraine account for 25% of the world's wheat supply. The Innovation Forum Spring Event Series kicks off with the Responsible Sourcing and Ethical Trade Forum in London on the 4th and 5th of April next week. I look forward to seeing some podcast listeners there. 
Also coming up are forums on sustainable apparel and textiles and business and climate action. All details of who is participating and how to register for tickets is available on the Innovation Forum website. We have two events focusing on the future of food, online from the 10th to the 12th of May and in person in Minneapolis in the US on the 14th and 15th of June. To find out all the latest about the June event, earlier this week I caught up with Innovation Forum's Emily Heslop. Welcome back to the podcast, Emily. Thank you. Thank you for having me. All right. So why don't you tell us a little bit, little bit about how the event is coming together? Yeah, so the Future of Food US is coming together really well. We've had some really good feedback on the agenda itself and a huge amount of interest already. We've been very busy over the last few weeks confirming some really interesting speakers. So it's shaping up to be a really great two days in Minneapolis on the 14th and 15th of June. What are the themes that are emerging as the agenda has developed? I mean, I guess there must be a greater focus and thinking around supply issues, given the conflict in Ukraine, for example. Obviously, everything that's going on globally, there's a huge shift in global supply chains. We're really going to be looking at how that affects procurement and food supply chains. Also, how this affects the ability of companies to achieve their ambitious goals that they've been set, kind of climate-based goals at the start of the year and targets and how this is going to affect them moving forward. We're also seeing lots of exciting discussion about regenerative agriculture and what this looks like in practice at scale for food companies as well. And we've seen a huge shift in transparency and trust within food supply chains, like you say, how everything going on in Ukraine has affected that. So we're going to be talking to a number of large food brands to look at how not only to adapt to these shocks, that external shocks that are out of their control, but also how to reconnect consumers with their food and engage them in this change. Emily, are there any new notable panellists that have come on board recently or any new sessions that you pulled together? Yeah, so since we last spoke, we've had a number of new exciting speakers come on board. We're currently at around 40 speakers, which is great. Obviously, there are too many to name, but there's a couple that have recently confirmed. Pilar Cruz, the CSO of Cargill, Jonah Smith, the global leader of ESG from Kraft Heinz, Kimberly Sundy, the senior director of sustainability at Kellogg's, among many others. And people can actually visit the event website to see the full list of speakers. In terms of new sessions, we've got a really exciting new addition to the agenda, which is a Shark Tank session. For UK-based listeners, it's kind of a Dragon's Den format where we're going to have four ag tech or climate tech startups pitch their innovations and then the sharks or dragons, as you might know them as, and the audience are then welcome to ask as many questions as they wish to gain a deeper understanding of their technologies and decide essentially which of the startups they would invest in. It's always a good session and it'd be great fun to have that back face to face for sure. All right, Emily, so how can listeners get involved? There's a number of ways people can get involved. They can email me directly at emily.herslop at innovationforum.co.uk to ask anything about the conference. If they're interested in speaking, we have a few slots available still. Also, if anyone's interested in understanding more about sponsorship opportunities at the event itself, they can get in contact with my colleague, Anita Thompson, who is our head of partnerships, and her email is available on the conference website. And then if anyone's interested in attending the conference itself, you can currently register online. And we have a ticket price deadline, so you can save up to $300 on your ticket if you register before next Friday, the 8th of April. So that's definitely worth taking advantage of. Great. Yeah, worth reminding everybody. So if you want to attend the event, then do register now, as you can save $300 on ticket prices, if you register your details before the 8th of April. Okay, Emily, it's shipping up to be a great event. Looking forward to it very much, but thanks for now. Thank you. 
few days ago, I spoke with Jose Luis Lopez, palm oil and biodiversity program manager at Solidaridad, and Mario Rafael Rodriguez, senior associate for Landscale at the Rainforest Alliance, about a collaboration project in Guatemala using the Landscale framework. Landscale is a new system for measuring sustainability at a landscape level, led by Rainforest Alliance, Vera and Conservation International, and which was piloted in the Ocasito landscape in Guatemala. We're going to be talking about use of the Landscale framework to identify human rights violations, and in this case, in a landscape in Guatemala. Mario, perhaps you could start us off by outlining the human rights collaboration project that Solidaridad and Rainforest Alliance have been working on in Guatemala using Landscale. Yes, I would like to talk about this collaboration was related to the Landscale initiative that was piloting in Guatemala, in the south coast of Guatemala. We, Rainforest and Solidaridad, was the partners that we developed this initiative in the field and we start to working with a lot of indicators in terms to assess the sustainability performance in the landscape. Also increase the sustainability in order to know how the situation is right now in this landscape. And it was focusing particularly on human rights issues. It was focused in four pillars, ecosystem, human well-being, governance and productions. In the pillar of human well-being, it was also the indicator about human rights. So, Jose, how does work on this project fit in with Solidaridad's other work in Guatemala? Solidaridad has worked with supply chains through around 30 years now. It's very interesting for us to work with this tool and support Rainforest Alliance in the implementation of this pilot since we also have a landscape approach in our several projects that are implemented throughout the region in Central America, Mexico, and the Caribbean. So it fits very well because since we have this landscape approach or in our interventions, we see it very important to have a tool to measure our performance or the project's performance. And Landscale gives this assessment through its four pillars that Mario mentioned before, so this gives us a great tool in our interventions also to implement it and to assess the progress of sustainability within our landscape approach. Mario, then, let's think a bit more specifically about human rights. What are the human rights indicators that the Landscape Framework recognises? The human rights indicator that Landscape Framework includes are the child label, women's rights, indigenous people and other marginalised groups' rights, forced labor, worker rights, and other human rights, that this last one is the opportunity to add other relevant human rights issues in there. But we, as um, the part of this work, we focus in the child labor and the forced labor that we found in the landscape. That was my next question. So which of these indicators did your project uncover in Guatemala? The indicators that we not cover not was covered was the indigenous peoples in the other human rights. We take all the child labor, women's rights, forced labor, and work rights. So you were finding instances of child labor in the landscape? We find in a violation in child labor and forced labor. That was the main violation that we found. How did your project help you uncover the reasons behind these instances of child and forced labor? So if I may add, Ian, it was very interesting that this process, uh, the, the process gave us in order to have these findings, since 
In the landscape, at first, we did a little a scoping study, you might say, to assess whether human rights was a relevant indicator for the, the assessment procedure, which we knew beforehand, it obviously is a very relevant issue, but we didn't have enough information of the landscape, whether human rights were being violated or breached. So during that scoping, we saw we had this specific assessment that gave us key findings on that there were being some rights being violated and regarded child labor and forced labor in many aspects, some aspects that may not even seem to be a violation to human rights. For example, retaining personal identification documents, that's considered one of the violations we found. And I think this was very important since we didn't have that full scope of human rights and how are they being breached in different aspects and in different areas of the landscape. It's right. Retaining documentation is a clear indicator of coerced labour, of trafficking, and it happens frequently, doesn't it? So, Jose, with the results that you got from the project, particularly around human rights, were they what you expected? Well, maybe we did have some idea of what to expect, but really it was really interesting to see a broader scope and also through the eyes of the consultants, since they were human rights experts, it was very interesting that the findings were basically in certain areas that during this landscale pilot, I think we didn't have thorough scope of where were these critical areas of human rights being breached. So in part, I think we did expect some results, for example, that human rights were being violated in certain areas that we know about. But there were other areas, for example, many in the informal economy in the landscape that we didn't know of or we didn't have certain details of these aspects. There's a detail that there might be a, a gap in the law system or the law enforcement system that doesn't allow to go to certain informal economy businesses and have an inspection, for example, because it's not registered. So there's no legal procedure that can, by routine inspection, may find. So those were very interesting results. And of course, this helps us to plan and find ways to encounter them. Can I add something? At first, at the landscape level, it was difficult to assess where the human rights were being violated at the area. Those areas that don't have a quality of sustainable information began raised as a segment was needed, and we used the landscape guidelines. That was a good issue. Landscape developed some guidelines where we can assess the situation without having information directly about, about what's the indicators directly. This gives you the opportunity to develop enabled conditions about it. Even we start to assess the enabled conditions about these indicators. One example is that when we talk about child labor, we assessed how was the situation of the child in the schools. How many child were in schools? How many child we are not even go to schools? How many child of these as are leaving the school? And this gives you some issue about the idea is that this indicator has to be increased. The, the idea here, of course, is that you know that in certain circumstances where children are not in the school or where children are leaving the school, that can be an indication of the fact that there are other violations of human rights elsewhere. So it's a very useful tool to indicate where the risks are. Yeah. Okay. 
Let's just think about the context a bit more broadly. And I wonder, why do you think that human rights are just not given the attention in supply chains that specific climate or environmental issues are? Jose? First, I think it's a very sensitive issue that has to be addressed. As Mario mentioned, this is very interesting in the landscape because we work with several companies in the landscape that are certified. They have some type of sustainability scheme and have to comply with different pillars of that schemes, including human well-being or human rights. So that's interesting to know that outside the productive areas, that's totally different. There are certain conditions that lead to these human rights violations issues. I think that's where we need to look into deeper because it's not as visible as a company or, or unless as a certified company, but outside where there's an informal market, an informal economy, I think that's where these issues are not being addressed and are not as visible. So maybe they are being taken forsaken or they're being not being regarded. So I think it's part of the economy chain that in some cases it's not as visible. It's a very sensitive issue to deal with. It's not being addressed by several stakeholders, including local governments, because there might be some legal gaps in order to address them or to address them correctly. Mario, same question to you then. Why do you think that sometimes human rights aren't given the same attention as supply chains as climate or environmental issues? When we talk about uh, climate or environmental issues, the last thing that the people think is about the workers or, or the people that is working that. And what we happen in, in our country, as the Jose Luis said, that is our legislation or the lack of strong institutions don't provide the opportunity to the people to go to present a claim about it. And that was one of the issues that we see in, in our landscape. There was no claims. No one said that there is a problem. And this provides the enabled conditions to increase the violation, the violation of the human rights because no one is going to go to the government or the institutions to present a complaint about it because there is a lack of institutionality. There is a lack of governance in the field. The only opportunities that we see in the landscape is when the supply chains go and, and ask or search the certification has an opportunity to increase the sustainability, to increase the complaint of these uh, human rights issues in the workers. This is the way that happened in the field, right? in our field. The companies that have a certification of sustainability is making a good effort to reduce the human rights bill. Jose, you want to come in? I just want to add that Landscale Tool also provides this, and not only in human rights uh, topics, but also in environmental and productive. It's a tool that is giving us information on where are we standing at in, for example, human rights and how is our status within the landscape. If we're seeing that we have several gaps or gray areas, well, this will give us the opportunity to improve that with the stakeholders. So now we could say, okay, there are human rights being violated. How do you think as a roundtable, how can we address these issues for example, companies have a complaint and grievance mechanisms that can be, be exported or replicated in other areas like in public sector or informal economy. So this is giving us trends on how where we're standing at and how can we improve 
to address these issues that we're talking about. And I think it's also worth highlighting that Landscale also includes indicators that assess standards of living, such as water sanitation and hygiene, among others. And of course, these are often regarded as environmental issues, but in fact, they are simply the link very much with human rights issues too. And in impacts of climate change, some people regard that as in fact one of the greatest human rights issues of our time. So these things all do link together. In dealing with them though, collaboration is vitally important. Mario, how do you think that platforms such as Landscale can help inspire a collaborative approach? The idea to provide information to the stakeholders in the field and also to a national level, we had the idea is to give more empowerment about the situation, not only to the enterprises, not only to the government. The idea is to empowerment all the stakeholders in the field and they can make their advocacy they make their effort to improve all the conditions that are down in the indicators label. Jose, how about for you? What do you think are the key points around why platforms such as Landscale can help inspire collaboration? Well, it's interesting that one of the steps of Landscale is to first determine the boundaries of the landscape that we're going to assess or that you need to assess. And after that is a stakeholder mapping. And in this mapping, we gather the different actors of different sectors in the landscape. One of the steps is also to identify common objectives, common goals. We need to assess what are the goals of each stakeholder within the landscape, and that gives them the opportunity to discuss and see what are the main issues that they see in the landscape. And at the end, identify common goals. So this inspires them to conduct efforts to address those common goals and to improve common issues in the landscape. I think this tool is a platform that helps organize ideas and efforts and come together to reach a common goal. Let's think towards the future then. Um, You've been working together, looking at piloting the Landscale platform uh, in this pilot in in Guatemala. What's going to be next? Mario, what's the next project and and how are you going to be using Landscale in the future? As one of the issues or situation that Landscale developed in the landscape was the all the actors, all the key stakeholders go and sit together and we developed a strategic plan for the landscape. And when this strategic plan, we developed five goals also related with so many issues that are important in the landscape evaluation. And we has one of the projects that we are right now working together with the, all the stakeholders is the restoration area for the forest in the we we start to working with them and we expect to have more than 1000 hectares of new forest recovered by 2025 and the idea also is by 2025 there another assessment of the landscape in the territory also Jose Luis is going to talk about another initiative that we are thinking about it but I think he is going to talk about Let's see. Jose, can you tell us about this new initiative? And thank you, Mario. As Mario said, Landscale also provides, it's a tool to measure, right? But it's also to communicate, to communicate the progress of the landscape towards sustainability. And in that progress and communication, we see that companies in the field, in the landscape, can make claims of sustainability, not only for them and for, I mean, for their market, but also for their clients. And we see that clients can also make claims that they are provided with 
products from a sustainable landscape or a landscape that's heading towards sustainability. So this gives us also a chance to seek for investment. We are looking to write proposals or to reach out to investors, impact investors mainly, to invest in the landscape and keep on conducting sustainability actions to impact on all the pillars that we've been talking about, especially for the smallholders and communities that are within the landscape. So we are looking for the win-win approach. And also uh, with Solidaridad and Rainforest Alliance, we're also seeking on how to scale this initiative. We're also talking about the continuation of this, not pilot, but now a project and a program. So we're looking to reach out to cooperation agencies and other donors, and also the private sector to see if there's any interest in keep on investing in this landscape. And I guess the beauty of the Landscale platform, it helps you to develop the project and at the same time as develop ways of being able to demonstrate to the likes of the investment community the benefit of the project. Yes, this is the issue of the landscape that when you develop a new investment, you have also the tool that is going to help you to see what is going to be the results and also how your investment is going to be linked with other indicators that are not also directly related to, to your investment. Well, thank you very much indeed. It's been a fascinating conversation. And thank you so much for talking us through the case study that you put together in southern Guatemala. And I look forward to hearing more about how it's developing and how it's scaling up, as Jose Luis said. But for now, Mario Rafael Rodriguez from Rainforest Alliance and Jose Luis Lopez from Solidaridad, thank you very much indeed. As ever, the Innovation Forum website is the place to go for all the latest analysis and interviews. And don't forget to take advantage of the £400 discount for registration at the June Future of Food event. Everything you need to know about this and all of the Innovation Forum Spring event series is available online. And if you're attending the Responsible Sourcing and Ethical Trade Conference in London next week, do come and say hello. But that's it for now. I've been Ian Welsh, and until next week, goodbye. <laughs>